Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to a very special episode of Living History. It's nearly Anzac Day this week. We will commemorate Anzac Day, but not in a way that we're used to doing. Obviously with the COVID crisis, everyone's stuck at home, no one's allowed out. There'll be no dawn services, no marches. It's really quite a sad time, particularly for those veterans who normally enjoy going out and connecting with their mates and connecting with the community on Anzac Day. So I decided that I'd do a few special episodes of the podcast, maybe bring a bit of Anzac into our homes. If we can't go out and commemorate Anzac Day, maybe we can bring a bit into our homes together. And I thought I'd do that by sharing with you some of my thoughts about visiting Gallipoli, standing on the ground where the first Anzac Day occurred in 1915 and if you can't get out and visit Gallipoli and or even just go down to your local service on this Anzac Day well hopefully sitting in your lounge chair you can uh, you can share this journey with me so what I'm going to do is read some excerpts from my book Gallipoli the Battlefield Guide which talks all about visiting Gallipoli and the quite wonderful experience it is to walk in the footsteps of the original Anzacs so I'm going to read from this book if you want to find out more obviously you can go and get the book available in bookshops or online um But hopefully this paints a bit of a picture of what it's like to walk the ground at Gallipoli, an experience that I think everyone should have if they get the opportunity. So we're going to talk at first uh, first now about the landing at Anzac Cove on the morning of the 25th of April. So of course, we all know that the boats landed in the wrong spot. It's a bit confusing about why they landed where they were not intended to, but they all bunched together around the northern end of Anzac Cove, a little little knoll called Arabernu. And that's where the first boats hit the uh, hit the beach on the morning of the 25th of April. So I'm going to read a, a few uh, little pieces about uh, about that landing as it came ashore. The beach in front of the cemetery at Arabernu is where the first Australians set foot on Gallipoli on the morning of 25 April 1915. We'll never know for certain the identity of the first man ashore, but Charles Bean, writing in the official history, says that it was probably Lieutenant Duncan Chapman of the ninth of the ninth battalion a 26-year-old clerk from Maryborough in Queensland. After Gallipoli, Chapman was promoted to major and served with the 45th Battalion on the Western Front. He was killed at Pozier on 6 August 1916. And it's really quite a remarkable thing to visit the grave of Duncan Chapman. If you ever make it to France, to the Western Front battlefields, it's a grave that I like to point out. It's a grave I like to take people to on tours because it's really such a wonderful connection with that original Anzac history, the first man to set ashore at Gallipoli on the 25th of April 1915, and then sadly killed just over a year later at Pozier. He now lies in Pozier British Cemetery, 
uh, on the battlefield, the famous Australian battlefield of Pozieres. So just to give you some sort of perspective of what it was like, there's a couple of quotes here from, from men as they came ashore. We should remember about the Gallipoli landings that it wasn't the hail of fire that, that uh, some people would have you believe. It wasn't like a scene out of Saving Private Ryan because the ground was so treacherous there. The Turks didn't think a landing would come in that area, so there, there weren't many men defending it. But there still were some there, and they opened fire as soon as they saw the boats coming in. So this is what Sergeant William Tunley had to say as he came in. How we wish they would fire or that we could land. The suspense is nerve-wracking. Crash, swish, ping. At last we breathe a sigh, breathe a sigh of relief. The suspense is over. Some get ashore safely. Some are hit slightly. Others are drowned in only a couple of feet of water because in the excitement no one notices their plight. One fellow remains in the boat after all the others have disembarked. He looks at us dazedly, leaning forward on his rifle. A sailor touches him on the arm and the soldier falls forward into the bottom of the boat dead. Lance Corporal George Mitchell was still more than 100 metres from the shore when the first shots rang out. Good, I remember saying, the bastards will give us a go after all. Clock, 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 wee, 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 came the little messengers of death. Then it opened up in a terrific chorus. The key was being turned in the lock in the lid of hell. Some men crouched in the crowded boat. Some sat up nonchalantly, some laughed and joked, while others cursed with ferocious delight. Fear was not at home. So that's the where the first troops came ashore at the headland known as Aribernu. And in the earliest days of the campaign, they set up a cemetery in that spot, being one of the only safe spots where people had come ashore. Uh, and there's still a beautiful cemetery there called Aribernu Cemetery. And this is where the dawn service was traditionally held. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about that and, uh, and, of course, about Anzac Cove, the famous piece of ground where the Australians came ashore. The Anzac Day Dawn Service was traditionally held at Araburnu Cemetery until the increase in visitors in the 1990s raised concerns for the welfare of the cemetery. The last service held here before the move to the new Anzac commemorative site was in 1999 and was attended by 8,500 visitors. And I tell you what, if you've been to Araburnu Cemetery and you know how small it is, that's a lot of people to be crammed in. In 1990, Araburnu Cemetery also hosted a contingent of about 100 Gallipoli veterans, the first time most of them had been back to the peninsula since 1915 and the last large gathering of the old soldiers. Now, if you climb down the steps onto the ocean side of the cemetery, you can walk south along the beach for 100 metres. And now you're walking on Anzac Cove, probably the most iconic piece of Australia not actually in Australia. This 600 metre curved strip of sand, ridiculously small when you stand on it, was the base of the entire Anzac operation. The landings here, although unplanned, were in some ways a blessing. The prominent Hell Spit and Araburnu headlands screened the Anzacs from Turkish fire and observation and made Anzac Cove the only place on this entire stretch of coast that was safe enough to form a beachhead. It's also worth remembering that some troops were always intended to land at Anzac Cove, just not the entire force. For the eight months of the campaign, Anzac Cove, or simply the beach to the troops, was a, was a hive of activity. Charles Bean describes the cove in the official history. When the struggle of the landing had subsided, the beach on summer days reminded many onlookers of an Australian coastal holiday place. The shoreline itself resembled rather an old-time port with its crowded barges, often beached to prevent being sunk, a few short piers, piles of biscuit boxes and fodder stacked behind, the smell of rope, of tar, of wet wood, of cheese and other cargo. But in the water, the hundreds of bathers and on the hillside, the little tracks winding through the low scrub irresistibly recalled the Manly of New South Wales, or the Victorian Sorrento, 
while the sleepy tick-tock of rifles from behind the hills suggested the assiduous practice of batsmen in their nets on some neighbouring cricket field. Within four days of the landing, Anzac Cove was as busy as the London Strand. General Birdwood asked that the beach between the two knolls, being the original landing place, should be known as Anzac Cove, and the name Anzac, till then the code name of the Army Corps, was gradually applied to the whole area. Day and night, the cove was full of the noises and sights of a great harbour, launches with toes moving constantly in and out, the shrill whistles of small crafts, the hoots of trawlers, the rattle of anchor chains, the hiss of escaping steam. At either end of the beach was the hospital, the New Zealand station at the north end, the Australian at the south. Colonels Howes and Giblin would not display the Red Cross on their station, crouched as it was amongst supply depots which the Turks might justifiably shell. Along the middle of the beach were long lines of picketed mules. Even by day, the strand between the growing supply stacks and the water was a crowded thoroughfare. Odd men, parties, strings of animals jostled through it, lucky if they escaped the kick of a mule. During shellfire, the casual hands would quickly disappear behind stacks of biscuit boxes, but the working parties carried on without regarding it. Anzac Cove was the main rest area for troops in the opening months of the campaign, but it was never safe. The Turks could see parts of the beach from observation posts both north and south and constantly bombarded the cove with artillery fire. One gun, nicknamed Beachy Bill, began firing on the first day and didn't stop until the evacuation. Its accurate fire prevented transports from approaching the beach in daylight and more than a thousand men are said to have been killed or wounded by its fire, many while swimming in the waters off the cove. And here's a quote from a soldier about recreation at Anzac Cove. One of their shells today hit a man in the water and took off his arm. At least it was hanging by a thread and he came out of the water holding it. It didn't stop the bathing. I heard there were eight casualties on the beach in all, but bathing went on as usual, except for a few minutes. Some men didn't, I think, even get out. When some Australian, or will it be Greek, starts a hotel here after the war, bathing will be one of the chief recreations. You'll have to walk nearly to Garba Tepe for your golf. Engineers built several flimsy wooden piers to serve as transports loading and unloading at the beach, the first of which was Watson's Pier, built about halfway along the beach. It was named after Lieutenant Stan Watson of the 1st Division Signal Company, who supervised its construction and fashioned a makeshift pile driver out of a Turkish shell case. Erosion has narrowed the beach significantly since the war. During the campaign, the beach was 25 metres wide. The road around the cove was originally a rough track constructed during the campaign. It was widened by the Turks after the evacuation and made permanent after the war. In 2005, controversial works widened and strengthened the road and permanently altered the the appearance of Anzac Cove, a tragic mismanagement of one of the world's best preserved battlefields. Consequently, it is no longer possible to follow in the footsteps of the first Anzacs ashore by scaling the heights behind the beach. A sheer cliff prevents any attempt and makes the entire beach inaccessible except for the steps at Araburnu Cemetery. The only safe access to and from the beach is via the steps at the northern end. Today the cove would be unrecognisable to the diggers who spent so much time here, but it's still worth strolling along the pebbly foreshore to soak up the atmosphere. Rough concrete slabs towards the southern end are the remains of the foundations of a water condensation plant built by the Anzacs and are the only tangible links with the 1915 campaign. The concrete bunker on the point on the southern end of the beach, like all the concrete bunkers at Gallipoli, was built during the Second World War and is not associated with the 1915 campaign. Just uh, not far from Anzac Cove, right next to Araburnu Cemetery, is a, is a memorial 
which features the words attributed to Kamel Ataturk in 1934. We don't know whether he actually said them or not, but regardless, they were quoted in his name. Uh, and so I think they represent his thoughts about the men who served at Gallipoli. The moral says, Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mehmets to us, where they lie side by side here in this country of ours. You, the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. That's really one of the most significant memorials at Gallipoli and the one most recognised by visitors and most photographed probably as well. It really is very moving to stand there and read those words from Ataturk. Now, just opposite Anzac Cove and opposite the cemetery at Araburnu is the small hill, the headland, which is called Araburnu. And this was the first uh, height scaled by the troops on the morning of the landing. It was from here that the Turkish defenders first saw a small armada of white boats surging towards the shore. Sensibly, the Turks didn't linger. Araburnu was captured by the Australians within minutes of coming ashore. Halfway up the slope, they found a wounded Turk lying in a shallow trench. He became the first prisoner of the campaign. Major Aubrey Darnell described the first charge. A brief pause on the beach to fix bayonets, much swearing, swearing and cheering, and we charged up the hill so steep in places we could only just scramble up. No firing, all bayonet work. Clean over a machine gun we meant. Men dropped all around me. It was mad, wild, thrilling. Not till I was near the top of the hill did I realise that in the excitement I hadn't even drawn my revolver. Interesting that he mentions a machine gun there because we now know fairly conclusively that the Turks did not have machine guns on the beach overlooking Anzac Cove. We've uh, seen the Turkish records which reveal that the, the Turkish units defending Anzac Cove were not armed with machine guns, only rifles. And there was probably only about 160 men there defending Anzac Cove on the morning of the landing, uh, most of whom were killed in that original, uh, original charge up the slopes. So an interesting one. Uh, perhaps the men in, could hear machine guns being fired from their own boats uh, and also just a volley of rifle fire, which sounded very much like machine gun fire. But it's, a, it's been a debate that's gone on pretty much since the landing, whether there were machine guns there or not. If you're feeling fit, you can scramble up the slope of Araburnu in the footsteps of the 9th, 10th and 11th battalions. Thousands of Australian and New Zealand feet have worn a very rough track through the scrub, but to reach the top, you'll still have to haul yourself up the way the Anzacs did, by digging your feet into the slope and clutching at the scrubby undergrowth. At the top, you'll find an excellent view of Anzac Cove, plus the shallow remains of the Turkish trench that was lightly garrisoned on the morning of the landing. The Australians who first scaled this height didn't hang around. They clambered straight up the western slope of Pluggy's Plateau, which looms above you. Those opening hours of the advance were a mad, chaotic dash, and the stakes were high. And here's a quote from Private Laurie Hyder of the 6th Battalion. I had the good fortune of trying out my nice, shiny bayonet on a big, fat Turk. He yelled out, Allah, then on again we went, and I came across a sniper. When he saw me coming at him with cold steel, he got up and started to run, but my nimble feet caught him in two strides. I stuck it right through his back. Scramble back down to the road and head south with the water on your right. The gullies slashing into the high ground on your left were pockmarked with dugouts in 1915. Rough bivouacs made from sandbags and tarps were home to headquarters, stores, hospitals and troop shelters for the entire campaign. It's hard to picture today, but an entire army lived and worked on these scrubby slopes for the best part of a year. The names of the gullies reflect facets of life at Anzac. Howitzer Gully, Bully Beef Gully and Shrapnel Gully. Also obvious are the sheer cliff faces scoured out of the slope by the roadworks in 2005. Those roadworks really were a tragedy. I'm sorry to harp on about it since it was 15 years ago, but 
it was just very poorly done. The um, Australian government requested that the Turkish authorities make sure the road was in good condition before Anzac Day. And without being very clear about what they what they meant by that, the Turks took it to mean that they wanted uh, the, the road widened and improved. So Turkish builders came in and basically carved out the cliff above Anzac Cove and widened the road. Um, and it's created so many problems ever since. It, it's put a lot of pressure on Anzac Cove. They then had to build a seawall to stop the road from tumbling into the sea. It was just a complete disaster and it absolutely destroyed Anzac Cove. It made me so angry at the time and every time I go back, I just shake my head in disbelief. But anyway... I suppose we move on. Uh, I'll return now to the book. Rant over. <laughs> if you'd been sitting in a dugout on these slopes on the afternoon of 25th of May 1915, you would have had a wonderful vista of the British fleet anchored off the Anzac shore. Just after midday, however, the sight would have become suddenly less wonderful as the largest ship, the HMS Triumph, lurched to starboard and sank in less than 40 minutes. She had been hit by a torpedo fired from a German submarine and went down in 55 metres of water, taking 78 sailors with her. Several other British ships had been sunk in the previous weeks, and the Royal Navy soon turned tail and slinked off to safe harbours on the outlying islands. The Anzacs watched dismayed from these slopes, as the Navy deserted them and disappeared over the horizon. I next talk in the book about a couple of sites around the southern end of Anzac Cove, including Beach Cemetery, where John Simpson is buried, the man with the donkey, and if you want to know more about John Simpson, then listen to um, my good colleague Peter Hart, uh, Peter Hart's Military History Podcast. A few weeks ago, he did a wonderful episode about all about John Simpson and his work at Gallipoli, which is well worth checking out. Um, also near that area on Gallipoli is uh, Shrapnel Valley, it's called. Shrapnel Valley, uh, so named because of the volume of fire that came in in the early days of the campaign. And then Shrapnel Valley becomes Monash Valley as it continues up towards the high ground and in Shrapnel Valley is a wonderful cemetery, probably the most picturesque in the Anzac sector, uh, called Shrapnel Valley Cemetery, where a number of notable people are buried. But from Shrapnel Valley Cemetery, you can also climb up the height known as Pluggy's Plateau. And in the book, I talk about an optional tour up to Pluggy's Plateau Cemetery, which I'd like to share with you now because it's well worth doing if you ever make it to Gallipoli. Pluggy's Plateau was the first significant height captured by the Australians on the day of the landing. To reach it, follow the sign next to Shrapnel Valley Cemetery. Allow about an hour for the return walk. The track to Pluggies climbs McLaggan's Ridge, named after Lieutenant Colonel Ewan Sinclair McLaggan, commander of the 3rd Brigade, the first Australian brigade to land. Sinclair McLaggan landed early on 25th April and, stro- and strode up this hill along the route you are following to get a better perspective of the chaos unfolding around him. Later in the war, he commanded the 4th Division on the Western Front. The extremely rough nature of the track is a good example of the difference between the battlefields at Gallipoli and those on the Western Front, the cemeteries on both battlefields are under the care of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, and visitors to France will have noted how the Western Front cemeteries have been constructed in easily accessible locations. A rocky track like the one to Pluggy's Plateau would be unheard of in France. As you follow the track, look out for wild thyme growing in the scrub. Rosemary is the herb traditionally associated with Gallipoli, and it grows thickly throughout the area, but it was the smell of thyme that commonly brought back memories for Anzac veterans. Many a young soldier who had lain pressed against the rocky ground in the opening days of the battle as machine gun bullets shredded the tufts of wild thyme and flung the twigs down the collar of his shirt would forever associate the aroma with the fields of Anzac. After following the track for about 60 metres, take a minor track to the left. In the scrub to the left of this track are the remains of a wide, deep trench, almost a sunken road. This was dug by the Anzacs to provide some protection from shell and sniper fire and became the main thoroughfare for troops heading to and from the front line. Its unusual, unusual width was to allow the passage of troops in both directions, 
and mules carrying full loads. Today, the much-eroded trench curves behind Shrapnel Valley Cemetery before petering out further up the gully. Return to the main track and continue for 50 metres, where a clearing on the left offers good views of Anzac Cove. If the water is clear, you can make out a dark streak extending from the shore about halfway along the beach. This is the remains of Watson's Pier that I mentioned earlier in the discussion. Continue along the track for several hundred metres until you look across a wide valley with the plinth of Pluggy's Plateau Cemetery on the high ground above you. This is Anzac Gully, which was lined with terraces and dotted with dugouts in 1915. General Birdwood's headquarters, General Birdwood was the commander of the Australian and New Zealand troops, General Birdwood's headquarters, where most of the operations in the Anzac sector were planned, was located approximately at the base of the ridge leading down from Pluggy's Plateau Cemetery. Dark streaks in the water beneath the hump of Arabernu mark the sites of piers at Anzac Cove. Continue walking uphill towards the cemetery. The remains of trenches can be found in the scrub on both sides of the track. A plateau on the right side of the track was the home of an Anzac artillery battery. Continue until you reach Pluggy's Plateau Cemetery. The cemetery is so small, isolated and difficult to get to that it's a wonder it was built in the first place. The fact that this small collection of graves was not moved to Shrapnel Valley Cemetery after the war indicates the strategic and sentimental importance of the plateau. It also suggests that the man most responsible for the post-war designation of cemeteries, Lieutenant Cyril Hughes, an Australian Gallipoli veteran, had a soft spot for the place. Due to the inaccessibility of the cemetery, it is rarely visited. Pluggy's Plateau was the first significant height captured by the Australians on the day of the landing and was named after Colonel Arthur Pluggy, commander of the Auckland Battalion, who set up his headquarters here on the first day. It was an exposed position and many men were killed here during the chaos of the opening days of the campaign. The first Australians ashore scaled the plateau soon after landing and exchanged shots with a group of Turks who sprang from a trench in front of them. And here's a quote from the official history. The first Australians clambered out onto the small plateau. Within a few minutes, the Turkish fire from its farther side began to slacken. A little to the left of Lean, two of the enemy jumped up from the trench and fired down on the approaching men. Private Thomas Batt of the 11th fell wounded, but four or five men who were reaching the summit at that moment made for the Turks, who ran across the small plateau. One was nearly caught when an Australian stepped from behind a bush and bayoneted him in the shoulder. The other was shot at the farther edges of the summit, where he rolled down a washaway in the steep side and hung dead in a crevice of the gravel. That quote is, um, gives a good indication of the ferocious nature of the fighting in the early days. Not, uh, not, not much quarter was asked for nor given in those opening days. Captain William Anir of the 11th Battalion, the first Australian officer to be killed at Gallipoli, was shot on Pluggy's Plateau within an hour of the landing. His body was lost and it's now remembered on the Lone Pine Memorial. Other men were killed when troops who had just landed on the beach began blasting away at the Turks on the distant heights and caught their own men with their fire. One of them was Sergeant Herbert Fowles of the 9th Battalion, who had lectured his men on the dangers of friendly fire before the landing. I told them, he said as he lay dying on the top of Pluggy's Plateau, I told them again and again not to open their magazines. Later in the campaign, the plateau was home to a field gun battery and several huge water tanks which had to be dragged to the plateau from the beach below. Pluggy's Plateau Cemetery, the smallest on the peninsula, contains the graves of just 21 men who were buried where they fell in the opening days of the campaign or were killed later serving with the artillery battery. Of these, 12 are Australians, 8 are New Zealanders, including 3 unknowns, and 1 soldier is unidentified. 11 of the men buried here were killed on 25 April. Pluggy's Plateau offers spectacular views of most of the Anzac sector. Walk past the cemetery to take in a sweeping panorama of Araburnu and North Beach. The rough outline of a sunken barge can be spotted in front of the Anzac commemorative site if the water is clear. Follow a rough track inland across the plateau. 
The remains of trenches and other fortifications can be found in the scrub on both sides of the track. The large stones scattered in the undergrowth were hauled up here during the campaign to reinforce artillery and machine gun emplacements. Pluggy's Plateau was considered the key to the inner defences of the Anzac sector. The evacuation plan called for Pluggy's to be fortified like a castle keep and to form the last line of defence in the event of the Turks breaking through the Anzac lines before the evacuation was complete. Follow the track along the eastern edge of the plateau. Maps used to plan the Gallipoli landings indicated that Pluggy's Plateau led directly to the next height, Russell's Top, but the troops who arrived at the point where you are now standing found that the two heights are connected only by the zigzagging, perilously narrow saddle that you can see directly in front of you. Not surprisingly, the troops christened it the the Razor Edge, and many of them made this mad dash across it to reach Russell's Top on that first day. The steep valley to the left of Razor Edge is Reserve Gully, where troops were held in support behind the front lines on Russell's Top and Walker's Ridge. The gentler valley to the right is Rest Gully, a sheltered niche on the northern slope of Monash Valley, where troops rested after coming out of the line. Makeshift church services were often held here for troops about to return to the fighting. And then that's the end of the tour to Pluggy's Plateau. You then head back down to Shrapnel Valley Cemetery. So once you've visited Shrapnel Valley, Shrapnel Valley Cemetery and Pluggy's Plateau, you can head back down to Beach Cemetery, which is uh, down on the on the coast, as I said, where John Simpson is buried. And then next to that is quite an interesting uh, little spot called Brighton Beach. Uh, and Brighton Beach was christened soon after landing, probably by the Victorians who uh, who were the first ones to land in that area. This long sweep of sand and the gentle slopes above it was the intended landing site for the bulk of the Anzac force on the first day. After securing the beach, the troops were supposed to head inland and secure Gun Ridge. This plan soon became irrelevant as the force landed in a bunch on Anzac Cove to the north. Whether this was a blessing or a curse has been hotly debated ever since. So just on that subject of the landing, the landing plans are actually fairly vague and there was about a a 1,500 metre front the troops were supposed to land on, all the way along Brighton Beach and then north into Anzac Cove. What actually happened was the troops bunched up and all of them ended up landing at Anzac Cove. Um, But that may have actually been a bit of a blessing because Anzac Cove was probably the only sheltered spot on the whole coastline and uh, Brighton Beach, where they were supposed to come ashore, was fairly exposed. So they may have come ashore more easily but may have actually suffered more casualties if they'd landed at the intended position. It's something that people have been arguing over pretty much since the day of the landing. So back to Brighton Beach. Throughout the campaign, Brighton Beach was under the direct observation of Turkish, Turkish forces on Garba Tepe, the prominent headland to the south, and was constantly shelled. The Indian Mule Cart Company established a supply ba- base below Hell Spit in the northern corner, and a high wall of biscuit boxes and storage crates was erected to provide some cover from Turkish fire, but this was never going to provide much measure of safety. On several occasions, direct hits from the Turkish shells resulted in a massacre amongst the mules stationed there, and more than 90 animals were killed in one barrage alone. The camp was moved to the gullies above the beach soon after. And now I'd like to tell you a story which I think is one of the most fascinating and amusing of the entire Gallipoli story. On 22 May 1915, one of the most curious incidents of the campaign occurred at Brighton Beach. The Turks had launched a large attack on the entire Anzac line on 19 May and had lost more than 10,000 men without capturing a single Anzac trench. No man's land was littered with corpses which were beginning to bloat and stink under the blazing sun. On the morning of 22 May, a group of Turks approached the Anzac position at Brighton Beach to propose a truce to bury the dead. A Turkish officer was blindfolded and led into the Australian camp to discuss terms for a ceasefire. The southern perimeter of the Anzac sector was protected on Brighton Beach by a sandbag wall and a barbed wire entanglement that extended into the sea, and the Australians soon discovered that leading a blindfolded man over two rows of barbed wire wasn't an easy feat. 
Charles Bean described the scene as follows. They directed his feet carefully over the first one, like you do in the game where a man is blindfolded and set to step over a lot of books that aren't there, irresistibly like it. They shouted for Coates to help him cross the second one, but in the meantime someone had a brainwave. There were several Australians bathing along the beach nearby. Someone rushed off for a stretcher, then they called for the bathers. Two of these big Australians, naked as the day they were born, took the stretcher round the larger entanglement. The Turkish colonel got on it. The two naked men carried him into the water, round the edge and back to the beach. And I got three photographs. And there's actually a very amusing photograph in the collection of the Australian War Memorial that I'm looking at right now, reproduced in my book, showing the two naked Australians carrying the Turkish officer on a stretcher through the scene around the barbed wire entanglement. And just to finish up before we depart from our tour around Anzac Cove, here's a wonderful little anecdote which I think sums up the Australian spirit quite well at Gallipoli. The British writer Compton Mackenzie served as a lieutenant in the Royal Naval Division at Gallipoli and described what he saw at the truce negotiations. On Whit Monday in the company of several officers from GHQ, I went over to Anzac where there was a truce of eight hours for the Turks to bury their dead. It has never been perfectly clear who really did ask for this truce. Lehman von Sanders, the Turkish commander, says that we did. Sir Ian Hamilton, the British commander, says that they did. A ludicrous incident occurred when the preliminaries were being discussed by various officers of high rank on both sides. They were gathered in a tent on the beach at Anzac, all of them probably feeling a little more anxious than usual to uphold the dignity of their respective nations, when suddenly the flap was lifted at the back and a New Zealand or Australian batman put his head through to call out in a voice of indignant contempt, Hey! Have any of you muckers pinched my kettle? And I think on that note, with the story of the truce being interrupted by the uh, the Aussie or New Zealand, who were the New Zealander who was keen to make his cup of tea, I think that's a good spot to end it. But I hope this has been a good uh, a good diversion for you and has uh, shed a little bit of light on the wonderful experience it is to walk the ground at Gallipoli. If you haven't done it, it's something I absolutely encourage you to do. It's a, it's a unique experience, whether you're an Australian or a New Zealander. It's a wonderful thing to do, and I'd encourage everyone to get over there as soon as we can leave our homes, to walk the ground at Gallipoli. In the meantime, I hope uh, this Anzac Day is a good one for you. Don't forget the Anzacs. Just because we can't go out and participate in a service or a march or go to the pub for a game of two-up doesn't mean that we forget the Anzacs and what they did. It doesn't mean that we're not thinking about them. If you're a veteran and listening to this, you're not forgotten. We, uh, We remember everything you've done and we're looking forward next year to hopefully getting out and commemorating Anzac Day in the way we all know and love. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone who served. I hope you have a, a memorable Anzac Day, no matter what you're doing with your, your family at home. And I look forward to talking to you again on Living History very, very soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.